This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. Today's show was brought to you by SoFi. SoFi offers student loan refinancing that saves members on average $19,000. They also partner with companies to help pay down employee student debt. See how SoFi can help you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. John Gruber, you are a podcasting pioneer. What did you think of that pre-roll ad? Uh, pretty good. I was surprised they didn't give you a special code, though, or did they? No, I think maybe in a mid-roll ad yeah. there'll, be a, there'll be something. I am very familiar with them. Well, we can talk sponsorship later in the, in the sponsorship portion of the segment. Let's talk dongles. <laughs> uh, uh, let's, let's introduce you, first of all. I think most people know who you are, but in case you don't, you are, are one of the foremost Apple experts. You are a pioneer in both blogging and podcasting. I'm very happy to have you. Welcome, John Gruber. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I didn't really think we were going to talk about dongles when I booked you <laughs> weeks ago, months ago, but here we are. Uh, Donglegate broke, what, a week ago? Um, Two weeks ago? We're talking now about the, the rumor that the next iPhone will no longer have a, a headphone jack. Yeah. It's weird, the cycle of these rumors with Apple stuff, because that first came out uh, via sketchy right. sort of Asian supply chain sources months ago. Right. And, and there was initial, what's Apple thinking? Right. And we went through it with the whole thing. And, you know, we being the people who obsessively comment on Apple stuff on a daily basis. And then what happened last week was the Wall Street Journal reported the same thing. Right. Daisuke uh, Wakanayabe. Uh -huh. I might be butchering his name. I'm we call him Dice K. Uh, Dice K. Which just, every single thing he reported was all previously rumored. Right. But and once the, the journal stamp. Once the journal puts their stamp on it, it becomes a big deal. So this is a, a, it's both like a fun thing to talk about. It's also sort of, I think, instructive about sort of what you do and how tech press works. So the, the story again is that, is that Apple's going to do away with the standard headphone jack, replace it with the lightning port? Nobody knows. That's no knows. part of it is that all that people know is that the headphone jack is going away. What their proposed solution is for how you're going to listen to audio from your phone, we don't know yet. Is it going to be lightning? Is it going to be all Bluetooth? Maybe they're, you know, we right. don't know so yet. So we know the, the old port is going away. This then triggers a bunch of sort of the standard sort of reblogging of the journal. And then there are um, several angry posts. One of them is written by my colleague at The Verge, Neelai, uh, very angry uh, about the notion that, that Apple is going to force, get rid of the open stand. There's a whole series of, it's a great rant. And then, then you respond to the ranters and saying, I think Apple knows what they're doing, although I don't really know what they're doing. Um, this is both a familiar cycle, if you sort of watched Apple technology, and, and I think it's less frequent than it used to be. I think this stuff used to happen a lot more often, and now, now maybe there's less of it because there's less sort of surprise coming. Does that sound right? Yeah, maybe. I, I, if there's you know something that maybe separates me from other people who follow this stuff is that I, I think I'm more calm. Yeah. I don't overreact to this stuff. And I feel like, you know, we've been through this so many times before. I mean, I, my one of the examples I cited was the 1998 original iMac, which didn't have a floppy drive. And in hindsight, everybody's like, well, floppies were so slow and small and you couldn't put anything on them. And so now today, when you cite that example, everybody looks back and says, well, of course they got rid of the floppy drive. They were stupid at the time. But at the time, they were... People use them for like what you, the colloquial term is a sneaker net. So like a, the way we use thumb drives now. But thumb drives didn't exist then right. because USB was like a brand new thing and PCs didn't have USB. So if you just had like a PC and a Mac in the same 
building and you just wanted to get an Excel spreadsheet from one to the other, a lot of people would just use a floppy drive. So there was a period where Apple getting rid of floppy drives was a big deal to a relatively small number of people. And then at some point, um, I guess really with the iPhone, Apple had become a giant, giant brand. Um, and this stuff seems like it became much more important to more people. It seems like that's waned a little bit. Yeah. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think so, maybe. Another example would be when they got rid of the, the CD drive and DVD drive in the laptops. Remember? <laughs> I mean, people, We've all moved on. And people would say, it, the reaction to that was, well, how in the world am I going to watch a movie on an airplane? Yeah. And the answer was, you know. It worked out. Yeah, it worked so, out. So as someone who participates in, in this scrum, right, you're the calmer voice and you kind of sort of, we can talk about sort of where your role is, but when you see people getting really angry about getting rid of the port and maybe adding lightning, do you believe that these are genuine feelings they have or do you think this is sort of theater and, and this is part of a cycle that no one is taking that seriously? I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I mean, you know Nilai. I mean, Nilai isn't sensationalizing his opinion, but he's not downplaying it either. You know, yeah, I mean, Nilai is good at spectacle. I think he would agree with that term. Probably, I'm probably cribbing that from him. Actually, yeah, and it's um, you know, and he's a good he's a good example of someone who does it right. You know, and he's very very good at it. Others definitely overreact a little bit, and I, I think especially on the, for whatever reason on the finance side of it. It, like when Apple's stock moves up or down a little bit, some of the f- people who write about these financial columnists, you know, l- like literally I have like a collection of bookmarks from people who ostensibly seriously are calling for the Apple board to fire Tim Cook, which is crazy. Right. I mean, so you can go deep in press criticism at some point, but but I mean, I think maybe there are different motives. I think if you're in the financial press or if you're a financial analyst, you can either say, well, could be this, could be that. I'm not really sure where it's going to end up. Or sort of shrug. Or you can say, this is my old boss, Henry Blodgett, did. Amazon's going to 400. Okay. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, and you get a little egg in your face, and you might tease them in a blog post. But really, you don't really get penalized for being wrong. If you're right, it makes your career. Maybe for, for both an analysts and, and bloggers, like it works both ways, right? Like you get, you get rewarded for taking an extreme stance. You generally don't, I think. Now no. you're sort of like, mm, yeah, eh. Henry Blodgett's a great example. I remember the one was he had a headline, uh, I don't know, probably like five years ago, something about uh, iPhone dead in the water. Yeah, uh, it's a very Henry title, very Henry. And it's you know, see, that would drive me nuts because one of my goals is to be right all the time, meaning correct. And that's impossible. Everybody, you know, makes mistakes. And so my goal is to identify if I've made a mistake or I'm wrong about some sort of aspect of what I speculate about to correct it as soon as I can, not to sit there and try to make up phony reasons to say why I wasn't wrong in the first place. But something like that, like having a headline like that, like in my archive would would drive me nuts. Do you ever lean out and say, this is what Apple's going to do? I believe this where it's where it sort of hasn't been disclosed and you know you're going to break news it seems like that's generally like sometimes you'll sort of hint sometimes i'll drop hints i've and i've i do it less and less as the years go on because i just don't think it's productive well let's let's talk a little bit about what it is that you do and and what you do day to day and and how you got there let's let's start present tense so day to day you're you're writing your site is daring fireball right um, and you're producing one podcast, multiple podcasts? Just one podcast. One podcast, weekly-ish? Weekly-ish. I think I've averaged about 40 episodes a year. And that is your full-time job, is blogging, podcasting. That is correct. You run a giant empire staffed by I have people. no employees. Just you? No, I don't even have an assistant. I'm assuming there's a contractor here and there who helps you edit or something? Uh, yeah, so the podcast, I have... Um, 
a guy I've been working with for a while named Caleb Sexton, who does the audio editing for it. But you are literally a one-man media company. That is correct. It's, I, I think, strangely, you're, you're sort of underappreciated in the publishing world. There was a period, I think, again, when, like, I think when technology blogging was newer and you were clearly the, the best Apple blogger and that was a big deal. There's a bunch of people who are now doing lots of different stuff. But I think there's a lot of discussion of where is media going? And one version of it is maybe people will be their own content companies and maybe they'll work with Facebook. And what would that look like? And you're out there doing it. You are blogging, podcasting. That is how you make your living. That is correct. And it was my goal when I started. I started the site in 2002. Um, I've been full-time since 2006. So there was about a four-year period there where I was doing it entirely on this side. and went from zero revenue to, okay, I think I can actually maybe go full-time. What did you, what did you start out doing? You were, you were a developer-ish? Yeah. So my background is, let's see how fast I can go through it. So I went to Drexel University, got a uh, major in computer science. Drexel has a great program. They call it co-op, but it's, it's like mandatory to graduate is you have to do like internships. And I loved it because it helped me figure out very quickly that I didn't really want to be a programmer. <laughs> I didn't like it. And I also was very active at the student newspaper, uh, eventually became the editor-in-chief. That's where I learned graphic design, self-taught, and really enjoyed writing. Uh, so when I graduated in 96... I was just kind of lazy and I could do things. I had the technical skills to build websites and when that was still a relatively rarefied thing. Yeah. And so I just did a lot of freelance graphic design and web design. There was work. a period where you could make a lot of money just building websites because no one else knew how to do it. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't ambitious enough to make a lot of money. I just made enough money to get by. And then in 2000, I went to work for a Mac software company called Barebone Software, the people who make BB Edit. And were you always a Mac guy? Were you always yeah, always, guy? always a Came Mac Came up guy. on an Apple IIe, 2C. Yeah. Always very, very into computers, especially Apple computers. Um, was there, what was the thing about Apple that, that you appreciated sort of prior to becoming a professional Apple observer? I could just tell at a very young age that these were the nicest computers. There was something very different. You know, put a Commodore and a Texas Instruments. And I get my elementary school, it was sort of like a hodgepodge. Like, I think instead of having any kind of system, it was like individual teachers would somehow finagle their way to get a computer. Someone had a Commodore pet. Yeah, and so some of them were Texas Instruments, and somebody might have had a Commodore. And then there were a couple of Apple IIEs, and uh, it was so clear to me that they were the... That was the thing. That was the thing. So you, you go to work for this uh, software company? I uh, spent two years there, and I've told this story before, but it's kind of funny. And so I'm six years out of college, and I kind of, in the back of my head, what I really wanted to do is be a writer of some sort. And I could see, like, with Jason Kotke and a couple of others, uh, Andy Bayo's weblog. Sort of post-first internet boom. Yeah. People are sort of blogging, but it's a very, there's not many people are doing it. And I had a vague sense of, I could do that. Didn't seem like I could do it while I worked for Bare Bones, because I, what I wanted to do was be opinionated. And being inside of one particular company, it just didn't seem like... And, and, and it sounds funny, because I think in today's world, that would be fine. But at that point, it's like, you can't really be criticizing Apple while you work for... No. And it also sounds like one of those things that someone might say is fine, and then once you start doing it, they say, no, 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 it's not actually good. Yeah, actually, maybe I, actually, now that I think about it, it probably wouldn't really, I really couldn't do what I do if I yeah. worked for another company. Um, but one of their products was an email client, uh, long since abandoned, but it was sort of like a, 
companion to BB Edit. And I some of the I just did all sorts of stuff there. But one of the things was I'd help out with tech support and on the customer mailing list. And a customer one time wanted to know, hey, can somebody help me write an Apple script that would go through my entire sent mail archive and figure out how many words of email I've written? I'm just curious. And so I wrote it. I was like, that's interesting. And then like I ran it on my own and I realized that I had written like in the last two or three years, like, I don't know, like 200,000 words. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I like, checked and I like made sure it wasn't counting the quoted material from old emails. Uh-huh. And it was like, I was so unhappy because I felt like I'm not, I want to be a writer, but I'm not writing. But it then turns I out you were. Out, yeah, I was. I was just, it was just all going on to mailing lists and <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, we'll talk about how you, how you moved into professional writing in one second. We're going to pay a bill right now. Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. Usually I tell you about all the great things SoFi has to offer. Today we thought it might be even better if you heard it from an actual SoFi member. Here's Joe in his own words. Hey Joe, what do you do for a living? So I'm an attorney. Let's talk about real numbers. What did you spend overall going to school? Well, so when I graduated, I had about $110,000 in debt. Oof. So you figure out how to pay the least amount you can just to sort of keep your creditors at bay. Yeah, $700 a month. And I don't even think that was covering all the interest that was accruing. And so you, you're paying 700 bucks a month, and that just sort of keeps your creditors at bay. You've got $110,000 and mounting, I guess, at that point. Yeah. How do you get out of that? So I was on the internet, on Facebook. I saw SoFi ad and thought that was pretty cool. So I clicked on it, created a profile. And I believe, and I think SoFi has calculated this, that I've saved about $35,000 in interest. It must feel good. It's amazing. In practical terms, then, what does that open up for you? The down payment for a house, solidly investing, or whatever I decide to do with it. That's a huge chunk of money. Awesome. Joe, you've been super generous with your time. I'm, I'm really appreciative of it. Of course. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. And we're back with John Gruber, who's explaining how he went from uh, amateur writer to full-time professional Apple God, as Henry Blodgett once called you. <laughs> So 2002, I left Bare Bones, uh, and my now wife and I, we were just living together, moved back to Philadelphia. Um, and I just started doing freelance work again. And I still had a lot of contacts from before, but I started Daring Fireball in August of 2002. So you um, start Daring Fireball, you're, you're paying your bills by designing websites. Right. And your thought is, I would, like, I would aspire to make this a full-time job right. one day. And how does that happen? How does the finance part of that work? Um, the first thing I tried was subscriptions, not really subscriptions. Like me- I think I called them memberships. And a lot of people are doing pretty well with that right now. now but at the time, this was probably, no one's going to pay for anything on the internet. The New York Times had tried it and gotten away from it. And I didn't want to put my stuff behind a paywall. That was the problem. The problem is I'm a, I'm a writer first and a businessman second. And my ego was such that I just couldn't bear to not have my stuff public like so people could link to it. And so what I started, I had like a sort of poor man's paywall where the first two years I did the site, all I had were like feature length columns, like articles. And I do like probably like two or three a week. Who were you writing for? Who did you imagine your audience was? I've always said that my audience is just me. It's somebody out there who's exactly like me and just isn't writing during Fireball. You is someone who is mostly interested in Apple and there's some things that are tertiary to it, but it's very right. Apple-specific. 
that's the thing you are most right. interested in writing about. Right. It's just an imaginary version of me who's out there, and it's. I just know that Daring Fireball is his favorite site. Have you ever thought about, maybe I should ask my readers what they want to hear about, or maybe I should poll them, or maybe I should do a survey, maybe I should figure out who's actually consuming me. Maybe it turns out it's it's not who I think it is at all. No, I have never. <laughs> maybe I should, but yeah. I've never done that. So all I had were the feature-length articles at first, and then I added the brief ones. And I think that's now what I do most of what I do now are the links to other people's yep. sites with my little two bits of commentary. But that wasn't there for the first two years. And what I started with the memberships was I had those set so that they wouldn't – 24 hours, they were only for people who had the magic URL. The links to other people's sites. Yeah. And I sold T-shirts. And it was, you know, it was a nice side. It turned in – within two years, it turned into a very nice side project, but nowhere near enough to support a family. And then, um, so when did that kick in? Uh, slowly but surely. So from then, from my 2004 to 2006, I worked at a startup called Joyant, and I was still writing Daring Fireball on the side. And I was just miserable, just because it was, I would, I, this is what I want to do all the time, and I, I've got all these other responsibilities. And so I thought, you know, I, I think that I'm never going to get to a full-time income until I'm doing it full-time. i got to jump. Yeah, I've got to jump. And I, we had enough saved up from when I worked at, you know, the joint paid pretty well. So and we had enough. Your, your wife or girlfriend, you tell her, look, I'm going to quit my job that right. has a salary. Right. And I'm going to go do this thing which does not have any guaranteed income. Right. And the stupid part about that, I overthought it, and I probably should have done it sooner because it's not like I was toiling in obscurity. I was making a name for myself in the industry I'm writing about. And so if it hadn't worked out, I wasn't making it harder for me to get a job in 2007. It only would have been the public embarrassment of admitting that, you know. Didn't work out. Right, that it didn't work out. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, right? Yeah. There's a, at least doing what we do, right? Failure is not the worst thing. The worst thing that happens is that thing didn't work. I'm going to go do a different thing. You know who I am. I'm going to right. build on that. Right. So what is the mechanism that eventually turned this into a real business for you? Advertising, uh, right? Yes, and in particular, a format of, to my knowledge, I don't know of anybody who tried it, you know, exactly like I do before, where it's one weekly sponsorship, 52 a year, that's it. Someone gets the privilege of attaching their name to your site. Right. I'm also a member of the Deck Network, which is a little, you know, a very small sort of a boutique advertising network, but that's a much smaller portion of the revenue to my own, the exclusive sponsorships that I sell. You are, you I, I think my perception of you is you're one of the the people who is interested in making money from advertising on the internet, but has very specific ideas about how that should work. You don't like targeting. There's lots of stuff that a lot of goes along with traditional web advertising. You say I don't want any part of that. I'm only going to I'm only going to do web advertising under these conditions. Yeah, I thought I've long been very opinionated about it. I really thought that the whole industry went off the deep end at the very beginning of the web with the way that they went about advertising with pay per click. And pop up ads, pop up ads, and CPM charging CPM. It, it's crazy because in the print world, there's a gating factor on CPM, which is that it's super expensive to print anything because paper is expensive, and there's absolutely no gating factor like that on the web. And so, all of these, every bad practice that people complain about, remember, like people don't really do this anymore. But they, for years, they would break up articles into little 250-word chunks, and then you'd have to click to go to the next yeah, Buzz, page. BuzzFeed got us off that phone. Because right. they showed you could do scale and stop doing slideshows. Right? Right. We're just, just going to give it to you in one giant chunk. It's crazy, but it's, all, it's just obviously to inflate the number of page views. And so my thought was, let's make something exclusive. Like, and in the print world, you know, they've long been very great at it. Like the back cover of a magazine, super expensive. 
because you get the full color, you yep. get the best printing, you're on the best paper. There's only one of them. And there's only one of them. So why not do something, try to do something like that for the web, which would be like one spot a week, you get to run a spot, you the advertiser write like 100 words, it'll go out on Monday, and then on Friday or Saturday at the end of the week, I'll write a thank you post in my own voice thanking you and I'll hit all the whatever talking points you want me to hit. And and so that works, that builds, I think your rate card is like 9,000 bucks is what you're charging now? It it fluctuates right now, but it's where it's been for a while. And then, and then you started doing podcasting on top of that. Right. And again, same basic idea when it comes to advertising. I'll do one or two sponsors. Um, it seems I think you're you're more amenable to sort of the the cost per action uh, model that a lot of us use, right? Where you're going to get rewarded if someone does something using your code. No, I don't. I don't think I've ever done that. I think everything is just paid up. They front. just pay you a flat fee. Yeah. And you promote it. Let me talk about podcasting for a second because I think these things tie together. There was a, a New York Times article a couple months ago saying. I'm not sure where advertising is going to go with with podcasting because there's no there's really no way to track this stuff. Right, and so the ad money is not going to come until this gets resolved. And also, by the way, it's all bottlenecked up at Apple. And you were, again were one of the voices saying this is a dumb perspective. The idea of like adding more targeting, adding more surveying, being able to figure out what people are listening to is is bogus. And your way, which is sort of a more pure version of that advertising, is, is the way to go. Yeah, and I think it's just it's just like with the web where it's like be careful what you measure. And if you set something up where there's tracking codes and the podcast players start doing all sorts of stuff, people are just going to game the system. And it's, wouldn't, wouldn't don't you want to know if people are listening all the way through what they're listening to when they when they tune out? Wouldn't you want more data instead of less? A little bit, but I just assume I think it works out in the long run where obviously people are listening through because I'm getting emails from people talking about things we talked about at the end of the show. And you, and you do two hour plus podcasts. Uh, yeah, the episode length has gone up significantly over time. And that's part of the reason I feel like I can justify only doing 40 a year is I feel like the number of hours of material I have is it's a lot of bang for your free yeah. buck. Yeah. But, but I mean, again, I think. Partly devil's advocate, but I think I believe this too. I think you would be interested in knowing, oh, you know what? Turns out people, most people tune out at one hour and a half, at one hour and 50 minutes. I get that there are diehards going four hours into this, but maybe I should just be more efficient. Yeah, you know, I guess I wouldn't say no if I could access that, but I just trust that, you know, it's being listened to in the aggregate. And podcasting in general, I was talking to Dan Fromer, who you had on recently. Um, He thinks that podcasting is now the, the bigger business for you. I actually, I'm, I mean, I'd, I'd have to check my like taxes from last year. It's, it's close to 50-50, though. Like, and some of it is a little hard to separate. Like, what, what should I count as the podcast and what should I count as the website? Because I know that one of the things that the podcast sponsors really like is that I always post, you know, a new episode goes to my website and their links are there, too. It's like one time I just absentmindedly forgot to include them, and I heard from the, very nice. wasn't a complaint, but you know, very nice. You know, hey, are you still going to post the text? And I was yeah. like, oh, I guess that is important. I think I know the answer to this, but do you ever feel like, boy, this Apple centric podcast I'm doing is great? Maybe I could do a second one about mm-hmm. something else. And Pat, you you're here to see the Phillies play yeah. the Yankees. Maybe you do a Phillies podcast or whatever. Do you want to branch out? Do you want to diversify? Um, maybe. I, I think if I did right now. 
doing another podcast would be the way to go because it's at least, I, I think it's around 50-50 in terms of where the revenue is, but it's absolutely growing. So I would guess that maybe for this calendar year, it's actually, this might be the year where the podcast surpasses the website. And so if you expanded, would it would it be another tech theme thing? Would it be something I don't know. entirely different? I, don't, I, have, I, haven't, I haven't given it enough, like, or, or an, an idea hasn't popped into my head that really makes me think I should do that. So this is not pressing for you. You're comfortable with the way you're business works, you could keep doing this in perpetuity. I think so. Yeah, I can't see stopping. So you are, it is an Apple-centric podcast. I was going to say, what's your relationship with Apple like? But it's good because you had Phil Schiller on, and yeah. you've had Eddie Q on. Have you always had a good relationship with people who run Apple? It's very strange. It was a very slow boil where when I first started attending like WWDC, which was like around 2006, I asked my friend Jason Snell, who was then an editor at Macworld, if he could maybe put me in touch with someone in Apple PR so I could see about maybe getting a press pass for the keynote so I wouldn't have to get in line with the regular people. And he did. And that was like the first time I really had an official contact with Apple PR. I knew my, my contact was always more through like actual like engineers and designers and back channel right. stuff. You, you actually talked to people who worked there. You right. were reporting. Did you think of yourself as a reporter? No, not really. I always thought of myself as more of a columnist, but maybe a columnist who Practicing does Practicing journalism, right? Yeah, You're a exactly. journalist. And, and so there was a period where, I still continue to this day, where some, the, a story would get reported out, I think Apple's going to do X, and Apple's going to do Y, and we would go to you, and you would say, this is true, or this is not true, or you would have a way of, of signaling whether you thought it was true. And from afar, I always thought, oh, well, well you're just tied into Apple comms, and they're sort of giving you the nod. Uh, no, very, especially in the older days, definitely almost nothing came through Apple's official channels. Uh, whatever stuff I had was stuff that I got through actual sources and stuff that maybe wasn't supposed to link. Actual reporting. Yeah. Uh, there was one that always struck me. It was, uh, it's funny to remember now, but it was a big deal at the time when Apple basically moved away from Flash. Yeah. And Steve Jobs had a memo basically yeah. kicking Adobe in the teeth. And I recall because it was a time where like we were really parsing what you wrote very closely, and you were tweeting in advance of that memo going out. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a big thing, and it was a big thing. It's again amazing to remember now. It's probably 2010, and I remember thinking at the time, there is no way that you know about the contents of a Steve Jobs memo unless Steve Jobs is telling you or his comms people or someone in that structure. But you're saying that wasn't the case. No, that was not the case. I can't remember where I got that from. But it definitely wasn't from Steve Jobs. <laughs> Again, it's sort of astonishing. You were talking about Mark Gurman on this podcast with, with Dan Fromer. But, I mean, Mark Gurman is able to do this. You are able to do this. And then it's kind of it. There aren't people who are really well-sourced on Apple. Um, various reporters at the Journal of Times over the years will get better at it. But then they sort of get cycled out and they do something else. Uh, you and Marcus are the ones with actual deep contacts within Apple. It's a very rare thing. Yeah, and maybe you with the media stuff. It's sort of a different Apple. It's a very different Apple. I mean, let's be frank. The reason I'm able to do that is because the media companies are not an Apple. Right? right. They're media companies. Right. I mean, there have long been Apple rumor sites, and that's not what I wanted to write. I wanted to be a columnist. But I've always had an interest in the rumor sites, and I always, for a while, I thought, you know, how could you do it and be right? And the, the secret, what I figured out was that the only way to be right, you're not going to get much. And so therefore, you're not going to have enough content pushing. That's why they publish all the, so much that's garbage and it p right. doesn't pan out because they have to, there's got to, you know, you got to feed. And again, the, there's no penalty for it. Yeah, you got to feed the machine. 
Whereas if I just wrote my regular column, but only dropped little hints of things when I had them, it might go, I might go six months without dropping a little hint. I could do that and I'd, they'd always pan out. So again, it's not Apple feeding you stuff. This no. is you out and getting your stuff. The, the other thing that always struck me was that you were not always, but usually you had sort of uh, agreed with whatever Apple line and Steve Jobs and Apple were pushing publicly. Not that you were doing work for them, but right. that you were you were Apple enthusiast. You also right. liked the way they were running the company. If you were ever critical of Apple, it was in a very specific way, and it was a big deal. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. If you look back at the early years of the site, 2002, 2003, 2004, I'm a lot more critical. And it was justified, because the early years, I mean, I don't know how long you've been using a Mac, but when Mac OS X first came out, it was really slow, and it really had a lot of issues. And, and so there was more to criticize. And then they really hit a role starting with, you know, like when the iPods became really popular and when they switched the Macs to the Intel processors and they got so much faster and cheaper. And then, of course, the iPhone. Right. So do you ever find yourself sort of strongly disagreeing with something that Steve Jobs in particular was pushing? In the early years with Mac OS X, yeah. and it's, you know, some super nerdy stuff. It's not like, but like the way that, like on the classic Mac OS, we didn't have to worry about file name extensions. You just name your file whatever the heck you wanted to, and when you double-clicked it, the right thing would happen. And then all of a sudden in, in Mac OS X, it felt like we took like this giant step backwards where files have these cryptic little .txt extensions. Right. So, so these are the complaints that someone who's deeply in love with a, a product and a company has, right? right. Most people are, are literally unaware of what you're even talking exactly. about. Exactly. Has being an Apple enthusiast, being a Mac enthusiast, being an iPhone enthusiast, has some of the ardor worn off over the years because this stuff is this stuff is available to many more people? It was just somewhere uh, where everyone had an iPhone. And it wasn't. It was a hospital, and everyone, you know, patients, doctors, everyone had an iPhone. It was. An, it was. It wasn't a mark of status or anything else. It's just what people use. Does that diminish your interest in the product? No, not at all. It's certainly fortuitous, though, for me. I mean, I was going to write about Apple almost certainly no matter what. And when I picked, when I started during Fireball in 2002, they were such a smaller company and it was such, it was such a smaller audience of people who cared deeply about this. And I, I certainly didn't have any, any inkling that the company would get as big as it has and that you would see things like, you know, walking down the aisle of a train and every single person is using an Apple device of some sort. Right, it's no longer a marker, right? Right. You don't have the indie band thing where I like the right. band and now they got too big and they're playing stadiums and I need to move on. Right. No, and I think I've I've done a good job of just being honest with myself and not doing that. You know, not not trying to be contrary just for the sake of being contrary. Because it, it strikes me that that in addition to the sort of the size of the company and they become ubiquitous, that it is a less interesting company to follow and write about. It seems like there's less audience interest, and I, I associate it with Steve Jobs and, and the fact that he's not there. Um, and I think it's hard again to remember, but if you go back and look at some of the footage, he was a re we took for granted that he was a charismatic figure. But unless you're going back and watching some of that old footage, especially sort of in the earlier days, I mean, he really was a striking person, right? And there is no, you know, there's kind of Elon Musk, but it's kind of Jeff Bezos, but they're not really the same thing at all. Right. Do you feel that loss as, as someone writing about the stuff? Yeah, I definitely do. And I try to underplay, I try to pull out the let's go back and talk about Steve Jobs again card as little as possible. But you have to. His personality is so imbued within the company that it's... But it, you're right. It's a literally a dead end to say, well, 
the Steve Jobs this, right? It's it's not he's not coming back. Right. I, I really think I mean it's very few comparisons, but Walt Disney is, you know, about as close as you can get. So when you're thinking about the future of Apple now, do you what's your take? Do you do you think, all right, it's it's up in the air, we'll see or do you think Steve Jobs has created enough sort of groundwork, architecture, whatever metaphor you want, that this thing is going to continue being awesome and excellent and worth following? Um, I do think, I've, I've said this before, that I do think that Apple itself as an institution is a very Apple-like product and that it was underappreciated while Steve Jobs was alive just how good of a company he created structurally and the way that it's organized. And I think that it really is a place where systematically interesting new products come out every few years. And I think, I definitely think that the likelihood is very high that that'll continue, but it's so hard to predict more than a few years in the future. You know, it's like everybody's talking about them making a car, which is, seems like if, if everything goes perfectly and they, you know, hit every target they possibly can, maybe like 2020 or something like that with all the regulatory stuff they'd have to jump through. And then after that, it's like, how, how, you can't even see past that, you know? So I don't know. There was a cycle where they went iPod, iPhone, iPad, and I think we were all trained to think every couple of years they're going to come out with a new thing that shifts boundaries and is a, creates a new category, um, changes the way the world works. And I think the new conventional wisdom is actually they made one of those. It was the iPhone. Um, and that we've become spoiled by expecting that every new thing is going to sort of create a new industry. And when the Apple Watch only sells X number of units right. and doesn't change the world, uh, we shouldn't look at that as a disappointment. It's just sort of the way of the world. Yeah, I really, and I think, you know, it, in some ways, the iPhone, it, it really is the culmination of everything that the company stands for. And it stood for since they founded it in 1977 or whatever. And it's truly the most personal computer you can have. It's with you all the time. So if they don't come out with a, quote, new iPhone, making air quotes, is that disappointing to you? Yes, but not because I expect it or feel like, you know, that they would if Steve Jobs were still around, just because it would be so exciting. And it was, you know, it really was such an exciting thing to see and cover in 2007. I'm looking at your, your watch. You're not wearing an Apple Watch. Is that a... Is that a statement? No, I wear it. I do wear it, but it's like 50-50. And a lot of times when I take a trip like this, like I'm on a, a two-day trip here to New York, to conserve battery life, I don't. Yeah. So um, do you think that if it was a better watch, a better product, it would be on your wrist all the time? Or you're always, it's just a different thing? Uh, it's possible. I just don't have great affection for it. I do wear it, and I like the fitness tracking stuff. The Watch OS 3 update that they announced earlier this month really looks like it could be a lot, it make it a lot more um, useful. What do, you, what do you do when you're not obsessing about Apple stuff? Uh, I watch movies. I like to watch baseball. And that's about it. That's about it. Very and specific. Just read, uh, just read tons and tons and tons. You've and sort tons. Of, you have a sort of monastic approach to this stuff. Your, your website is very sort of specifically sparse. There's no clutter on it. If you haven't listened to one of your, your podcasts you, and you're listening to this, you should because it has a very specific cadence, sort of unlike everyone else's product. It seems like it's very considered on your part. Uh, yeah, I think so. I would like to think so. Pretty cool. Do you think other people can do what you're doing, create a one-person publishing business, whether it's actually websites or podcasts or whatever? I used to think so. I And the, the leg up that I had in the early years, again, 2002, 2003, was my technical background 
the fact that I knew how to build websites and publish websites. That was a huge thing because it wasn't the way you'd get started blogging back then was you would download a blogging package and configure it and then install it on a web host that you were renting before blogger before blogger before tumblr and so i just assumed that maybe somebody like me and jason kotke heather armstrong of deuce.com you know she had a web design background and so she was writing uh about her family life so in order to work in order to write on the web you had to know how to use the web you had to have some kind of programming and i just assumed that that was why for the early years i just assumed the reason that there were so few of us meaning people like one person publishing companies was that we it was the combination of having the writing talent and the technical talent to do it. But then once it became obvious that the technical hurdles were gone and you could just start a site with Blogger or Tumblr or something like that and just, you know, click, click, and you have a website and people weren't doing it, I started really like scratching my head. Like, I don't get it. I don't get why more people aren't doing this. And I don't know. I I still don't know why that is. Because we're at a wave right now where there's, well, maybe that'll happen on Medium. Maybe Medium will become the tool that people do that. It seems inevitable that Facebook is going to support those people. Um, Maybe it turns out that writing for a living or even talking for a living, it's not hard. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. However one would construct that phrase. It can't be that hard because I'm doing it. But maybe enough to support yourself as a very specific thing. Yeah, and maybe it's a personality thing, too, where there are times where I sort of don't feel lonely, but... I get jealous of the camaraderie that like a small team of people, you know, like, you know, to work with someone like Dan Fromer, you know, is a good guy. It would be to have colleagues who you actually like. I, I sometimes get a lonely slack by yourself. Yeah. But I think ultimately, though, my personality is such that maybe I'm particularly suited to working in the, as you said, monastic style that I do. I was ne- I've never been a very good employee. I think I've, I've left employers on good terms, like friendly and like, yeah, we'd still love to go out and have a beer with you. But I think most but of the this, people, this, this come to an end for a reason. Yeah. It's a good time to move on. Yeah. And, and um, I, the other thing is I really hate asking for stuff. I hate to ask permission. And so like it one, the other thing was that it was never my goal to parlay the success I had at Daring Fireball into a job at an existing media company, never even shopped around. I mean, in the early years, sometimes people would send out inquiries to see if I was interested, but I never wanted to. So New York Times comes to you, Bloomberg comes to you, like they did with Mark Gurman, Apple comes to you. Someone says, look, you're doing a great job. We want you to keep doing what you're doing, but come work for us. Does that appeal to you? No, I don't think so. Apple would be, I, I can't see that they would do it, but I, I do, there is a position that I wish Apple had, and it arguably, I don't think I would do it now because I'm, I've got a good thing going. But I think Apple should have like a, equivalent to an ombudsman, uh, you know, the New York Times calls yeah, it a public great. editor, but somebody who works at Apple and gets a blog on apple.com, but has the independence to write whatever they want. I think it could be, it would be so good. And for things like controversial app rejections, like, you know, have this person look into it and talk to people and figure out what the actual story is. I mean, the one big difference, right? In theory, the New York Times public editor has the ability and the right and the expectation that they can go up to whoever they want in the New York Times newsroom and ask them a question and then report what they say. Right. Apple famously, famously secretive about everything. Right. Hard to imagine how it would work, but it'd be really cool if it did. Yeah, it would be really cool. Uh, Have you <laughs> floated this to, to Eddie Q or Tim Cook before? Um, I don't know who I've floated it to. I, I don't... Some people, people, more people that you haven't heard of. Though. Yeah, and what's the reaction? That's an interesting idea. 
which is something you hear from people Apple all the time. I think it's cool that you're doing it on your own. Yeah, and that's sort of why I feel like I there's no need for it. Like I sort of serve that purpose on my own. John Gruber, thank you for your time. This has been great. This is a lot of fun. It really was. If you guys like listening to this, we're glad you did. Um, all we ask is that you subscribe. You can go to your uh, podcast provider of choice, iTunes, Google, Overcast. Overcast. Subscribe. Give us a review. That'd be great, too. And uh, tell a friend about it. All those things are good. That's all we ask. Thank you to SoFi, our sponsor. Thank you for Digital Media, who helps produce and distribute this stuff. Thank you to John Gruber. See you guys next week. <laughs>